Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Lizard Hour, hosted by Josh Ortiz and Wild Man J.D. Hartzell. following are the Lizard Hour sponsors. Check out ReptileUV.com for your lighting needs and education. Home of the original designer and extended warranty on select Mega Ray UV bulbs. Remember, reptile lighting is a process, not a bulb. Fairy Tale Dragons specialize in high quality morphs of dragons, animals, geckos, and much more. Check them out on Facebook. Innovative ectotherms, specializing in chuckawallas, morphs, colored lizards, and more. Look for them on Facebook. Herptofauna by Josh Ortiz, specializing in Asian water monitors, lacertas, tegus, and many more. Lizard Hour is presented by Herpentime Radio. Hey everybody, welcome to this week's uh, episode of Lizard Hour. Uh, I'm excited for this. We got uh, Carlos on the line. You got some great tagues, but I was going to say something really quick. Uh, uh, Lizard Hour and Herpentime Time Radio is also brought to you by Zilla Reptile Products. Uh, check them out on Amazon. They have a lot of different products. Uh, check it out and get some. And I got Josh online. What's up? What's going on there, brother? Nothing much, CD. How you doing? Uh, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Uh, yeah, got got some colder weather, but the sun actually came out today for a little bit. But it was nice to see that for a while. But uh, how's the farm going, man? It's going pretty good. I'm expecting some um, Chuck Wallace tomorrow from uh, Innovative Ectotherms from uh, Nick and Austin. So that's pretty exciting. And then uh, today I got some Australian water dragons in, some more, so to add into my uh, my colony. So it was an exciting day, and I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Oh, awesome! That sounds awesome. You know, Australian water dragons—they're really cool and they're hardy too. They can take the cold, they can take the parasites, they can take everything. Oh yeah, no, honestly, they're one of the hardiest lizards I've ever come across. Period. I mean, they never give any issues. They they don't stress out easily. I mean, we, I mean, we could talk about them, you know, for an entire show. We actually have. But yeah, Australian water dragons are great. Yeah, uh, now I have uh, Carlos on the line, so you know I want to bring him on here so we can talk a little bit about some of them uh, crazy-looking tagues he has. Awesome! I'm really excited. Carlos, welcome to Lizard Hour, my friend. Hey guys, good evening. How's it going over there? It's going well. It's going well. Uh, how are you doing? Great, great. Let me just tell you that it's a pleasure to be on the air with you guys. Um, 
really, really a fan of all the work that's been going around with all the lizards and, you know, looking forward to seeing all the projects that's coming up in the future. I'm really, really excited this year. Oh, that's great. It's our pleasure. Um, so a lot of people may know about your background, you know, with, you know, different lizards, different awesome projects you have. Um, your online presence is, is really good. And, you know, I always tell people, you know, Carlos has great animals and he's a great guy. So, but for the few people that don't know about your background, maybe you want to tell them a little bit about how you got started. Um, I began with the lizards, with the reptiles in general in 1998. I started breeding uh, green tree pythons. And with the green tree pythons, I started doing some of the locality specifics. Then I started crossing some of the localities, and then I got into some of the higher-end morphs. I got into some of the industry professionals, and I got some of the collection from um, breeders such as Trooper Walls, Rico Walder. I had uh, Johnny Blue Animals, Marshall Mendes, a couple of different bloodlines that were um, genetic morphs and stuff going around in the market, as well as a couple of locality-specific animals. From um, green tree pythons, I moved on and I also started breeding uh, ball pythons before they started gaining all the popularity that they have nowadays. I started with some simple projects, just trying to work with some morphs and so forth. And um, coming on the beginning of like four or five years ago, I saw a transition coming up in our collection. I started acquiring with my business partner, Edward Leatherman, some of the lizards that we currently have right now started getting into some of the tegus and breeding them and so forth. And I started shifting my, my purpose in, you know, in the reptile community from being snake oriented into being more of a lizard oriented as far as like building bonds with the animals and so forth. I just, you know, I got more of a, of a bond, bonding experience from the lizards and I felt more of a, of a bond with them than with the snakes. And I also felt that the community with the lizards is more of a welcoming community and it's more of a friendlier community, more open hands to accept new new breeders that come in and they're more welcome to share their projects than my previous experience with some of the snake keeping. So my passion got definitely taken away by lizards. <laughs> I dedicate most of my time now to uh, breeding the tegus. We also have uh, some iguanas. We have baker eyes. We have rhinos. We have some uh, monitors we're also trying to work with. We have rough, roughneck monitors. We have a couple of uh, green, green tree monitors and a couple of other different projects going on at the moment. That's awesome. Um, so you have a lot of really good projects going on, and I think that's perfect. That's great. So it seems like, you know, one of the main projects is, is the tegus. And um, a lot of people listening, you know, know quite a bit about tegus. But for the people that don't, maybe give background on the types that you're working with, like, you know, whether it be blues or black and whites or designer type stuff. Um, if you want to give a little bit of background on that, that'll be awesome. For sure. That's great. Um, what we started breeding was we started doing some of the projects with the blues. We started doing black and whites. And then uh, we started mainly with the black and whites. And then from the black and whites, we started collecting more of the blues and some of the bloodlines that were going around in the market at the time. But what we tried to do was steer away from breeding everything that anybody else would have in the market. 
such as uh, black and whites and pure blues and pure reds and so forth. We tried having something unique to bring to the market so that we would have something different to offer from everything else that's being offered. So when we started the projects with the Tegus, the first animals that I acquired were some Ron St. Pierre bloodline black and white Tegus. And from those Ron St. Pierre bloodline black and white Tegus, I started breeding out some of the high-end blues that I acquired. I got some blues from Thai Park, some blues from Hector's Habitat. And those blues I got from third parties. Some people told me when I purchased them that they came from head albino lines. So I felt like it was my duty to go ahead and prove out the bloodlines just like I had done with the snakes in the past and try to see if I was lucky enough to be able to prove out an albino. So my wife and I were working with the project for close to four years when this year finally we were lucky enough to produce um, 87.5% blues and 12.5% uh, chalk one high whites from Ron St. Pierre's line. But mainly what we're trying to do is breed um, we've collected in the past three years the best bloodlines up from Tegus that we found in the market from different breeders around, and we've tried breeding that onto our line and onto other lines from other breeders that are going around to create unique Tegus to bring to the market. Uh, we didn't want to bring um, regular black and whites, regular blues, regular reds, even though we, we have a deep passion and we love the regular stuff. We wanted to bring something that had more generations of crosses in them to create definitely a, a uniquely looking tegu as far as like the broken down coloration, the pixelation and so forth. Just basically going off my experience from the green tree pythons from trying to make a unique python with different colors, different pixels on the scaling and so forth, trying to bring that same ideology over to the tegu trade and seeing if I could put that variation, kind of like make work of art tegus, you know. So I've been crossing uh, bloodlines from different breeders together with my own bloodlines, as far as like other bloodlines that I see are doing things that are genuinely unique in the market, that are producing standout tegus, grabbing the best out of those lines that I can find and breeding them back to other lines that have produced standout tegus to, to try and hopefully produce one of a kind tegus. That's great, you know, and I've seen a lot of your tegus. You, you do have a lot of unique, you know, awesome-looking animals. Um, so I want to hear more about, you know, the specifics of your projects. But first, a lot of times what we try to get into also is, you know, different keepers, you know, keep animals differently because there's always, you know, more than one way to do things. So maybe you want to tell us a bit about, you know, your setups and how you have your tegus outdoors. Um, if you brumate them outdoors or indoors, if you do different things for different types of tegus, um, or if it's standardized, you're a little bit about your, your feeding regimen, stuff like that. So you're like your maintenance of them. It's always nice to hear what different breeders do. So, of course, man, I'm in total agreement with that. And I'm not the type of individual that I feel like I know it all. I mean, from from speaking with different individuals in the industry every day, I get to learn something new a new technique, a new feeding method, something new to try with my animals so that I could get their attention better. You know, these are really intelligent animals, so there's different ways that you could interact with them and, you know, make, make them, the keeping of them a very pleasurable experience, not just, you know, something that is time-consuming and hard work. It's, it's all around a passion and, you know, a pleasure to deal with. So what we do is we start with the babies, what we feel is the, the best uh, method to do so, 
is we, when we get them right out of the egg, we set them up in 10-gallon setups. So in these 10-gallon setups, they're set up with paper towel, and that way we're able to monitor the babies um, as far as if they're, you know, if they're pooping, if they're eating correctly, uh, all of their different traits and so forth that they have then that they're showing for the first couple of days. Some babies, you know, they're born a little premature, so they may have a little bit of umbilical cord hanging. I really don't want that to rub against, like, mulch or anything like that and get an infection. So we keep them on the paper towel for, like, the first five to ten days, according to how the clutches start adjusting. The next phase that we do from the 10-gallon tubs is the ones that are having trouble eating or that we see that are staying smaller. We move them up to a 20-gallon setup and those are kept separate from the rest of the ones that are thriving in the clutch. And the bigger the uh, bigger clutch numbers that we have, we keep them in setups that are four feet long by two feet wide by two feet tall. And we keep them in there for like about three to four months, and then they're about ready to go outside due to the, the feeding regimen that we give them and the way that they grow in size. So... What we do is um, we monitor them. Once we see that they're all growing, and this is around this time of the year, uh, for babies that were born in July, if they're ready and up to size, we set them up in individual pens outdoors according to how we want to broodmate them for future breeding and so forth. For the adults that we have, what we do is we keep them outside year-round um, we keep them on no-float cypress mulch, which is what we found works out best for us outdoors. They're kept outdoors all year round, and the only time that we bring them indoors is when there's really bad rain season, like around March and April this past couple of years, we had a really bad raining season. But we've set up our enclosures in a French-style uh, draining mechanism, so that all our enclosures are able to drain out according to the rainfall that, that's coming in. So none of our pens eventually even get flooded. They don't even get a half a foot of water inside of each pen. But as a safety precaution, we grab the animals that are outdoors when, whenever there's these circumstances for longer than two, three days. We bring them indoors in, in Home Depot, you know, the, the tote boxes that have the yellow tops, and we set them up yep. indoors. Uh, same procedure goes as well when we're brewmating and the weather gets around 55 degrees or, or uh, lower. We tend to put the animals in, in totes as well and bring them into the reptile room that is heated all, all year round. But generally, we keep them outside. The adults, we breed them outside, and they do extremely well. They basically thermoregulate themselves throughout the year with no issues. What we've seen is, you know, during the regular time, during the regular season, they're very, very active, and they're outside showing high intentions of wanting to feed, wanting to interact. They're even interested in each other and so forth. During colder months, like now in November, they tend to slow down more. They become a little bit more sluggish. You get to see them. They, they develop like a yellowish skin tone, and this is the time of the year that we stop posting posting. Uh, most of the adult pictures on Instagram and so forth because they look the ugliest. <laughs> they have like a, a, a really thick skin that they develop, so they look kind of like yellowish. And this is like the the brumation um, the brumation shed that they have, which is a really thick hide. So when they go under and they hide during this time of the year, they stay kind of relatively warm. Then um, this is the time 
our tables go under around late October. There, there, some of them right now are still up, which is very rare. But I think it's because you know every year the seasons change, the weather tends to be different, and so forth. But mainly our tables right now are under. They tend to go under and come back out around the time of March. And then during the time of March is when you see that really thick skin shed come out. And that's when they start showing a lot of intentions to start eating again and a lot of intentions to start breeding towards each other. Gotcha. That's awesome. So I had a few questions about that. But before um, I ask my millions of questions, J.D., did you have any questions for Carlos? No, yeah, I think he actually covered just about everything I I was thinking of, Josh. Uh, yeah, it was a good job there, Carlos. Oh, thank you very much, Okay, so a question I had is um, so for your for your tegus, I'm assuming obviously when females are gravid, you separate them, or or maybe not. So so basically, my question is, are you keeping your adult pairs together all year? Um, do you separate females and then reintroduce them before brumation? How are you going about that? What we do is we, we keep uh, 1.2 together, one male per two females. When we start seeing that one particular female is showing signs of being gravid, whether it be her her belly is distended, her tail starts to shrink in a little bit towards the cloaca area, or we see them, basically, my biggest sign to watch on a female that tells me that she's gravid and she's ready to start laying soon or is in the process to do so is they start bulldozing through the substrate on the in the enclosure, whether it be mold that you put or if you put a little bit of hay, they just start pushing it into one side of the enclosure. It typically, is under the hide, and they start constructing a lay box. Once they start constructing their nest box, I separate the male and the other female that I have in that pen, and I put them into another available pen together. The same thing goes with, with the secondary female that I have with that same male. Once she becomes gravid, I never leave a female in with the male. I know a lot of breeders tend to do so, and I've seen pictures of the breeder going in and removing the eggs from the female with the other male being in the enclosure. But I've had a, an instance two years ago where I had one red male with two red females that were breeding a, a trio of Paraguayan, and the male basically waited until both the females laid individually and then went up to their nest and started to try to burrow on top of the eggs and started eating away from the eggs. So due to that experience, I never leave my males with the females any longer. Neither do I leave females with females because once one becomes uh, gravid, they become aggressive towards each other. And I've had instances as well where one female starts attacking the other. So to avoid any further hassle or any further complication within the animals, I tend to separate them all, or, or I tend to separate the two that are not um, part of the, of the female that's gravid until those two become part of, you know, part of the, part of the breeding. Gotcha. It's, it's funny because you actually hit on both of the, the reasons I separate them too. One, because the female becomes um, more assertive when she's gravid. Just, you know, it's the same as is true of many lizards. It's true of monitor lizards as well. And then um, with the male potential eating the eggs. That happened to me once, too, um, a few years ago where a male ate the eggs of the, of the female, and, and that's why I never keep them together. So have you ever uh, tried, like, one male to one female as opposed to trios? And I'm assuming if you're doing trios that it's worked out well for you, but have you ever tried a different way to see if it 
um, the results? I have. I keep uh, trios of the breeding individual pairs, like the the pairs that the male is younger and less mature in size than than the others. I keep those together, but I tend to put the females that are very large in size with the males that are very large in size, just 1.1 together. Because that's another thing, you know, you don't want to put a, a very large animal together with another one that's not up to its size because it'll establish dominance, in my opinion, too, and, and it'll go and start attacking the other one. But um, it's a very heartbreaking situation, man, like you were discussing. You know, when you see your tegu go and eat the eggs, all of that hard work that you put into raising these animals, getting them up to this point to start breeding and producing for you, and you get them so far, and then you start seeing that other animal attack the eggs. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah, no, definitely. So it's a good thing you separate them. So when are you putting them back together? Do you after once they're down in brumation, are you putting them together then? It seems like there's kind of two schools of thought. I know some people that what they'll do is they'll separate the females out. Um, the female lays her eggs. They keep them separate and to condition them. And then once it starts cooling down again and they start slowing down for brumation, they'll pair them back up so that when they wake up in yep. the spring and they start becoming more active, they start breeding. But then some people brumate them separate and then put them together when they wake up. Um, does that make well, sense, Professor? I have – yeah, yeah, definitely. And I agree with you on that too, Josh. I mean, when, once I separate the animals, I keep them separate all the way until I feel that the temperatures are, are cooling. I've tried in the past to in – in order to avoid using extra pens in, in my setup to put house them back together after a long time that they've already laid, but I seen that they still have aggression towards each other. And in one instance, I had a female attack a male really bad, and actually the male lost a couple of of his fingers. So I don't do that any longer. I just wait the whole season out, and I keep them separate. But um, during the end of the season, during brumation, like now that it's colder, what I did was basically last week was when I separated and, and I aligned the pairings from the animals that I feel will be tolerant with each other. And then for the whole day, I have somebody watching in my facility, either my wife or one of our employees, Danny, that has been helping us out lately. I have them come over and watch the animals all the time for about two to three hours to make sure that they're tolerating each other and that they're doing well. Because uh, animals also, when you put them, even if it's colder, they may not tolerate each other. So you may need to keep them separate all the way until you're planning on breeding them when it comes to breeding season in March. So I have both right now. I have a mixture of animals that tolerate and handle being together throughout brumation, and I have animals that need to be kept separate until breeding season that they're introduced with each other. Gotcha. So it's basically like a case-by-case scenario. Where ideally it would be nice exactly. to put them when it cools you, you down, have but to watch if you have to do it differently. They, yeah. Exactly. You have to watch them and watch how they react with each other. And the reason why we do that is because we have, right now we're planning close to a 28 pairings coming up for the, for the next breeding season. So we try to house some of them together in order to save for some pen space in order that we have to separate another animal and put them relocate to this empty pen. But we're we're working on building right now as we're ta- as we talk we're constantly expanding. So we just added 18 new pens in the past two weeks, and we're adding now another 12 more to complete the setup for this summer coming up. So we should have plenty of pens in, in case anything happens. You know, it's always good to have 
extra enclosures instead of less enclosures in case you have to separate animals you weren't expecting or counting with them reacting, you know, aggressive towards each other. Gotcha. You made a lot of uh, really good points. Um, for the last few years, I've been brumating everything separate. It just, um, But I think I may do something similar to what you're doing. I've been giving it a lot of thought because now is the time of the year, you know, to make sure it gets done. Um, of course. Okay, so for your setups, you were touching on um, your, your caging and stuff like that, that you made more cages. So I'm always interested because I've always done – uh, covered caging whenever I did outdoors, and now I now I have a bunch of cages outdoors since I moved down south. Do you have covered mm-hmm. caging? Because I'm always worried about birds of prey and things like that. Because I see some breeders that they have it, you know, open to the elements, which is great. I think that's awesome. It's really convenient. But I would get nervous with predators. So, no, definitely, we don't keep anything with with an open top. Just because of that, I mean, even with the enclosures that we have now, I've seen raccoons, cats, all sorts of animals trying to get into the enclosures. It may not even be that they like eating uh, the lizards as a prey, but they just see something moving inside and it calls their attention. So what we do is we set them up in uh, the adults in uh, eight by four by four pens and the juveniles, they're set up in four feet by three feet by three feet setups. And then what we do with those is we don't put chicken wire all around like, you know, you've seen the underground reptiles videos that they have chicken wire all around the enclosures. We steer away yep. from putting chicken wire as the walls of the enclosure because the tegus, when it's, when it's breeding season and they're trying to get away from each other or when they see something that alerts them and makes them want to run away, whether it be you passing by the inflow or the enclosure or so forth, they tend to run so aggressive towards the chicken wire that they'll rub their noses flat. And their their nose rubs don't really look appealing, plus it's not healthy to the animals, you know. So what we do is we actually build the sides out of the actual fence wood that you use for the for the fencing, like to separate properties and so forth. Those fence pickets mm-hmm. that are real thin wood, we use those and we build up the walls from that. We put a chicken wire layer under with a two by four frame, and then we chicken wire that we um. We basically pancake the chicken wire in between more of a two-by-four frame, but instead of doing the chicken wire all around that same frame that goes on the sides, we frame it with wood instead. And then on the top, we make the back part sturdy, stayed on the cage, made out of chicken wire, and then the front, it tilts open with also a chicken wire layer on that. And with that, they get perfect sun all day. We give them a basking spot area that's elevated from the substrate area. So they come all the way up to where the chicken wire is, like two feet under the chicken wire, and they're able to get sun all day there with no issues whatsoever. But I feel like steering away from making the walls that, that fence material helps them with the rubbing on the faces and so forth, especially during you know the hotter months and breeding season that they're a lot more active. They, they tend to rub a lot on that stuff. So what I do is basically I set it up. As, as I, I built a skeleton. I built the whole floor at once, and I built the skeleton out of two-by-fours on top of the floor. And from there, I stack up the wood, and I built the, the top sturdy onto the whole setup. So I built like domino-style enclosures, like if it was a, basically a pen rack set up outdoors. That's great. I really like that uh, those ideas. Um, and I've noticed yeah, and what you can do is you can run it. 
you could run it towards one side that the doors open facing one side and then you could put another stack that the back to one is the same back to the other stack opening towards the other side so you have basically like you know how you how you do like a number six in a domino stack of, of reptile table cages set up all the way down as many as you feel comfortable doing but that's i feel like that works a lot better it gives them a lot of security it makes them feel, you know, more secure in there because of the fact that they're not constantly seeing a threat or somebody walk by the enclosure. They're not constantly rubbing their faces, and it maintains them even uh, cooler when when it, when they when the months are like 108 degrees or so forth out there. So it gives them like a, a more of a thermal regulating temperature. I feel inside the enclosures. No, that completely makes sense, and I, I really like those ideas. Um, so something else I wanted to touch on too, because you and I actually spoke about this a few months ago, and I liked a lot of your thoughts on the, the, the diet and how you go about that. So you want to tell us about the diet you have here, Tegus? Yeah, for sure. What we do is we try to get, give the Tegus a variety of diets. We try not to give them the same thing every day, and that's for a, a majority of different reasons. They, if you give them one diet that they stick with, they tend to shy away from eating everything else when they're older. So we, we like to give them a full spectrum. You never know. We raise them up to our standards, but you never know what's closer or what's convenient for the keeper that's going to keep the tegus being, you know, the new owners. So what we do is basically we we get a, we have a butcher shop that's close to a facility, and we get uh, ground gizzards, necks, and hearts, all that mixed together. And what we do is we put Alaskan wild salmon oil that we purchased from Amazon. We get the, the bottle pumps of that stuff, and we give it a couple of pumps per serving. And we also give the repashi, the calcium plus, every other feeding. With, uh, with, but we don't just only do that. We do that mix. We also do ground turkey. We do a variety of different fishes that we find either in the market or that we fish for. We also give them snails. We give them the Missouri crop chow. We give them eggs. We give them a rodent diet. And we also give them ground rabbit, ground deer, whenever it's, it's available to us. So we give them a, a large, large spectrum of diet because I feel like it, it not only helps them with the way that they grow and the way that they adapt in the new homes, but that the diet also has to do also with the way that they change as an animal, with the way that their disposition is laid out, their color, a lot of different things that go into play. So we try to just give them a full spectrum of diets and not keep them on one thing. Another thing also that I stress out and, and I try to incorporate in every other meal, and I tell new keepers to do so as well, is to try to give them a, a little bit of a veggie and fruit diet. But what we do is we start incorporating the veggies and the fruits slowly inside the meat mix because they're generally mostly carnivores. So they're gonna go. They're gonna steer towards eating the meat. But once you start incorporating the berries, the little pieces of squash, papaya, and so forth within the meat mix, then they start developing more of a flavor for it. And then you could start changing the ratios of meat per veggies and fruits that you give them. So you could start upping up the amount of veggies and fruits per serving that you give them, and give them less meat if, if that's something that you feel comfortable doing. But we mainly steer towards giving them a carnivore diet. That's great. It's it's funny because um, you actually gave me that tip with the Alaskan salmon oil, 
And um, because I, I yeah. wasn't doing that previously. And then some picky eaters that I had really liked it. Because before the trick I would use is mixing in eggs in there because a lot of them tend to like eggs. Um, so I would mix in the eggs and that would work. And then, um, but yep. some of them would still, you know, stick out and they would just want rodents. They wouldn't even want the eggs if it was mixed with the ground meat. And then once I ordered that, exactly. I just ordered it off uh, Amazon, I believe. They loved it. It made a huge, huge difference. So that's a tip I've actually given a few other yeah. people too. So. <laughs> no, and the Alaskan salmon oil, the, the thing is too, the amino acids and all of the vitamins that it has on it, it all of that grease, it helps them out with the, with the layers of their shed and developing that, that grease that they develop themselves to be able to shed out even easier. So on like the rufescents, the, the reds and so forth, and the red crosses, I found that it actually helps them shed better. I've had issues with the reds in the past shedding a little bit rougher than the regular blues and the black and whites and so forth. And when I've introduced yeah. the Alaskan salmon oil into their diet, it's completely changed that. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point because I usually notice it with reds and red crosses shedding issues. Um, yeah. So in terms of your frequency, what are you doing for frequency? I'm, I'm assuming that your adults are eating less often than your babies. Your babies are eating far more often, right? Well, we feed every day when when it's like around the, the months from March till about August, early September, we feed every day. Then you start seeing the animals, they start slowing down a little bit towards the months of September and so forth. Then we just observe the the enclosures and whatever animal seems to be outside roaming and basically basking, those are the ones that get fed. So basically, you know, they, they get they start slowing down to like an every other day schedule, but typically we feed our animals every day. All our adults and all the babies. That's awesome, that's really good. Um Yeah. So I yeah. wanna get you know, I, I also yeah. and I'm sorry to cut you off, Josh. Sorry about that. I, I tend to offer them food and basically observe them for the first five to ten minutes. If they come and eat and they're, you know, they're, they're intrigued by the food, then by all means they get to eat. If I see that they're not entertained or intrigued by the food by any means, then I go ahead and rotate the plates around. But I, I've noticed that if you keep them in a, an enclosure that has an ambient temperature, that they have a basking area and so forth, they will eat every day for you. No, that's great. That that completely makes sense, and that was really thorough. Um, so I want to hear more about your Teus and your specific projects because you have some that really unique albino that you that you've been posting, and you have a lot of really unique animals. But before you get you know into the specifics of your projects, maybe we could talk about some of the other species you have there because I know you have some green iguanas. I saw some roughneck monitors that you have. Um, how do you enjoy having those species, uh, like the roughneck monitors, for example? Oh man, I love them. Uh, the roughneck monitors, I've, I've been always intrigued with them. I've always liked how they look like dinosaurs and how insane, you know, their, their whole disposition is. So what I started doing with them is I, I like a challenge when it comes to reptiles and basically everything that I do in life. My friends are like, bro, you like all the missions. What's wrong with you? You stick to something easy. <laughs> so... Basically, what, what, what I've done is, you know, I, I've liked the challenge of, of working with the Roughnecks. I'm not going to lie to you. It's been a hard road working with them. I've lost quite a few. I've lost about three of them since I started working with them. But basically, what I try to do is I try gaining the specimens as young and as readily available as possible. Obviously, you know, the Roughnecks have been wild-collected specimens that I've been able to get my hands on. 
but I try to collect the ones the same type of patterning per group that I have breeding for them. For example, I have some that came in with a pattern that came in with a because I, I believe and there's other breeders also that believe that there's like micro localities of them for like the little micro island groups as well as a mainland group, which tends to be the bigger ones. So what I've done is I've separated the ones with like the yellow the yellow patterning in one enclosure, the ones with the blue patterning in another enclosure and so forth to try to like, you know, limitate the, the crossbreeding within them just until we could get something established in captivity and then, you know, all of those experiments could be done there on forth, you know. But my whole purpose with them basically has been trying to establish them indoors to the point now that I'm able to put them and have been keeping them outdoors in, in new enclosures that we built. But um, the whole process was, was pretty hard on us. You know, it was kind of heartbreaking. My wife, she dedicates a lot of time to the reptiles. This is basically, you know, her full-time job. So she's crushed every time we lose an animal. So am I. So Ed, my business partner, he's like, man, you know, just keep your head up. You know, I, I, we have faith in you. We know that you're trying your very best. But they have been a challenge, you know. But since we get them, we get them very young. Then we start giving them a parasitic treatment. Then after the parasitic treatment, we try the same thing as the tegus. We try to establish them on a high-variety diet, try to see, you know, get them going on anything that they like the best. We try to spoil them a little bit so they get a little bit of weight on them and so forth. And then from there on, we go. But now that we've maintained them indoors to the point that we have them outdoors, we have actually have some of the... The localities that we kept indoors, which are the ones with the bluish patterning, they've started to show interest, and we've actually have a, a breeding pair at the moment. The, one of the females already dropped one of the eggs for us. Unfortunately, it was infertile, but you know how it is with the monitors. Sometimes the first clutch is, no, is a no-go, but, you know, we have high hopes for those going forward. Um, we also have um, green tree monitors, which is the Prasinus and the Cordensis. And what we're trying to do with those is we're trying to cross the, the cordensis with the prasinus because I'm really intrigued and like how the patterning work comes out when, when you cross both of them because they get a higher spectrum of colors in their, in their pattern. They get blues, yellows, all types of greens. They start with the olive greens and go all the way to the lighter tones of greens. So I, I've liked those crosses ever since I've been, you know, into the monitors and so forth that I've got to see some of them actually prove out and produce. Another project that we're working is, is we have the Baker Iguanas, which we had our, our first infertile clutch this season as well because the female was rather small and it was her first clutch. But we're waiting now for the next season. You know, they're, they're eating nonstop. They've been basking outdoors because we set them up outdoors as well, and they're doing great. The rhinos were still a couple of years far away, but that's more of like a, a little hobby project that we have on the site. We just really enjoy working with the rhino iguanas and the rhino iguanas that we worked in other collections. So I wanted to establish some of my own to work with and so forth. But the, the biggest focus that we have, even though we have a lot of iguanas and, and monitors and so forth, is with the tegus, man. The tegus have honestly taken over my life. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I, I, I've noticed, and that's great. Um, before I forget to mention it, I wanted to tell you, you take really good pictures and you have really nice graphics and everything. Because sometimes you put graphics up 
on your pictures on like Instagram or, or Facebook. And I'm sure you'll mention, you know, how people could view those if they want. And I'm like, wow, I really should just text him and ask him how he does that. I don't know if that's an app or what he's doing, but that's really good. So congrats on that. You do a great yeah. job on that. Thanks, man. We um, try to stay on top of the on top of the game with that. My wife helps me out a lot. She tries to look for all the apps that she can out in the market. And what we do is we try to play with different apps and so forth, just so that you know people can stay interested in the animals, you know. And also because you know those little videos that you make and so forth, a lot of the younger audience, man, they get really captivated by the whole experience of like the animal. Like the animal looking like it's a, like in a mystic world and so forth. So we like to animate that, and we like to make you know the, the youth feel like they're a little bit more than than just you know a lizard. You know, like they're a little dragon basically that they could keep, <laughs> a little pet that they could enjoy for themselves. Yeah, and it makes it more memorable too, and it, it stands out. It's unique, and it, it shows you know someone going the extra mile. So I think that's definitely cool. Um, before I get off track too much, though, you were talking about some of your other projects. And the green tree monitors, I mean, I think that's going to do really well for you because I, I've always thought that uh, I know a few people that breed them outdoors. And in general, with the arboreal species like the green tree monitors, um, having like the morning dew and everything like that, I really think that's going to help with their husbandry and get them cycling and everything like that. I know people that breed them indoors, but I've always thought that if they were um, set up correctly outdoors, they would really flourish. So so I'm, I'm pretty confident no, with that project with you for you. And the whole thing, too, is the challenge of finding the right um, building materials to use for every different species because you can't just, like, buffer every species under the same spectrum and use the same building materials for everybody. you got to observe the animals, the way that they act, the way that they move around their enclosures, and according to that, build your enclosure to the animal's needs, you know? That, I feel, is a very strong point, too. Yeah, of course. To, to customize it instead of just doing like one standard, one standard set. Exactly. Um, for you, for your monitors outside, are you doing like hot boxes and stuff like that? Because I believe you're in like really South Florida, like Homestead, correct? Yes, we are. Uh, okay. We bring in the monitors, but this year I'm gonna build uh, heated enclosures for them outdoors. Yet it, it's not that that cold yet down here. But it's definitely something that I'm working on right now with Danny. We're building some of the heated enclosures for the monitors, for the iguanas, and for the caiman lizards as well. The previous years that we've kept the caimans outdoors, what we do is we put them in, in totes and we bring them indoors. Because here what we get is basically our winters last like a week or two, and then they're gone. You know, that's, that's as much as the cold weather as we get. But just to be on the safe side, you know, we still bring them in. We keep them heated. We make sure that everybody's safe. That's awesome. Um, JD, did you have questions about um, for Carlos about the different projects he's working on and different species? No, you know it's funny, Josh. Before you got on, you got on the show and stuff. Me and Carlos would talk about the water monitors, and he was saying, "He goes, yeah, I gotta get some of them." Yep. <laughs> I was mentioning to him, I need to get some black dragons from you, bro. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you know what? Um, I'm starting to get more and more confidence with people having them in Florida. And being in Homestead, I've seen, like, um, you know, like Tommy set up for his um, Salvadori, his croc monitors and stuff. And I really think that they would do well there, especially if you modify it. And the good thing is, since you pay attention to the different setups that they need and just don't do one standardized setup, for you, they would do really awesome because, you you know, you'd pay attention and say, okay, well, this needs a slightly different setup, not the same exact setup I use for such and such animal. So for you, they'll do great. 
Exactly, man. That's something that I'm really interested in. And something that that's always blown me away is to try to prove out and establish things that they could breed in the climate down here. Just like, you know, Tom is doing it, like you said, with the Salvatore and so forth. I would like to give a shot also at trying to prove out some of the things, keeping them outdoors that have never been proved. But that's that's definitely something very interesting that I'm looking forward to doing in the future. And I'm sure we'll be working forward to some things in the future as well. Josh, I have so many things coming on. Everybody's going to be very thrilled this year coming up, believe me. That's awesome, definitely. Do you want to tell us about the um, about the projects you have running in terms of um, the, the albino? You have a really unique albino that you keep on posting. I, I don't know the exact percentage breakdown, even though I'm sure you listed online. Do you want to tell us about that animal and about some of your really unique stuff, like all the albinos you produced this year? Yeah, sure. Um, the very unique one that I think you're mentioning, that's the purple, purple titanium that we produced this year. And that one, we produced and it proved out that the titanium bloodline that was produced by Zach Venezia actually was produced with a uh, head for albino blue female. So what we did for that one was um, we purchased a, a female from Ryan Malango from Yellow Room Reptiles. And she was yep. a purple to purple cross that was 66% head for albino. So she was a very unique animal. Uh, Ryan sent me the pictures of her and watermelon, which is our, our pink panther. And when he sent me the pictures, they were super, super dark and kind of looked like the, you know, like they didn't have much color to them, but they had this really, really unique green patterning to them that they reminded me so much of Tron. And I was like, man, Ryan, I got to have those two, bro. You got to send those two over to me. <laughs> so long story short, I raised them. I named the, the female the purple, purple uh, kiwi. And the male, I named him watermelon. And he's the pink panther. So I raised them outdoors. And during that time, we were expanding our facility again. And I had the purple, purple female with another female, which was a, a pink panther as well. And they were in an enclosure with a titanium male, but it was a one of my grow out one of my grow out enclosures that I wasn't expecting much of them to to grow up to breeding size. But they were outside since the the previous year that they got put out, and they were eating nonstop, man. They were eating everything on site. So during the breeding season, you know, we kept observing the animals, we kept feeding everybody, we started breeding breeding. Um, sorry. Um, building the new enclosures, but during the time that we started building the new enclosures, we noticed that kiwi started swelling up, and not only kiwi, but also the super blue female that we had in the pen, in the grow-up pen, where watermelon was in as well, and this was the first time in us breeding tegus that we have seen sexually reproductive tegus so small in, in our setups. So basically, you know, I told the wife, listen, you know, these two look like they've obviously taken, so we need to take steps to to separate them and to make sure that they're going to be safe. And this was during, you know, some really bad rain season that we got this past uh, breeding season. So what I did was I brought Kiwi into the reptile room, and I put her into one of those Home Depot famous (laughs) yellow top tubs, and I set her up with some mulch, and I was like, you know what? I'm hoping for the best with this because I have never had an emergency scenario where I've had to set up a female to lay indoors in a tote before. They've always set up outdoors in their normal natural pens, and everything has been fine. So 
So thankfully, I called the female two days before she laid. So she ended up laying indoors in the reptile room and one of the totes and the substrate that was in there. And everything was fine. Now, Kiwi was a rather small female. So her clutch of 26 eggs was uh, one of the clutches that I've had with the smallest eggs in them. I didn't think that they were viable at first. You know, I was like, let me go ahead and give them a try. You know, anything is worth a shot at this point. I'm just happy enough that the female was able to pass the eggs. She's healthy. She's eating again. Everything is fine with her. She's going to be fine and, and good to go for me. So based on, you know, the little information that I had with her, of the size of the eggs and so forth, I went ahead and I incubated them regardless to give them a, a shot. Now, during the incubation, I lost, like, three of the eggs, but all the eggs stayed white. You know, typically when I have clutches of tegus, I, I tend to put them in the incubator and watch them for a while because some of the clutches, when they're not fertile, they start to shrink in and look like raisins within the first week or two. But hers maintain and were viable. So um, during the, the incubation process, everything went well. During the last week of, of incubation, um, that they started hatching, I had Purple Rain, that famous albino that, that I've been posting recently. He yep. was the first one to hatch out out of the eggs. Then I had um, three possible heads come out from the eggs, and then there was a total of eight albinos in the whole clutch. Uh, three of them made it through the night. Um, only one survived, which was uh, Purple Rain, and the other albinos were still born fully formed and fully colored in the eggs. They never made it out of the eggs. So it was kind of like a win and lose clutch. You know, it was a mix of emotions because out of the whole clutch, we only had four heads that made it and purple rain, which is the albino. But it, it proved out many things for us. It proved out that Kiwi, the purple, purple female, is a, is a head for albino for sure, 100%. And that the titanium line, the titanium that we have, amethyst, is also 100% head albino. But we also have in our collection another uh, 11 more titaniums, which we're hoping now for this upcoming season, we're doing uh, with some um, that we have in the collection. We're trying to do a titanium to titanium project to try to prove pure titanium albinos. And we're also doing a couple, I think it's three or four, if I'm not mistaken, projects where we're trying to get New World's first albinos, including some of the titanium bloodline, but cross to other different past heads that we have. So we're, we're planning on this next season coming up. This year we had the purple-purple with titanium albino, which was only one. And we had the super blue albinos, which we were lucky enough to hatch out seven of. <clears throat> and those are 87.5% blues and 12.5% high white chalk one from the original founder run St. Pierre line. So we had a total of eight albinos from those. But for the for this season coming up, we have about uh, eight new albino projects that we're working on to develop new ones. That's awesome. That's, that's really exciting. That purple rain, that's one of the prettiest albinos I've ever seen. So congrats on that, brother. It's a really good-looking albino. Um, Thanks, man. And I so think uh, the, one of the reasons why also is because of the higher percentage of red that he has, that I think he's going to maintain some of those red and dip that he has on the skin. No, yeah, that completely makes sense. I have a question about that clutch. Um, what's your theory on why 
I'll tell you the reason I ask is because, you know, mm-hmm. certain years, you know, I'll have similar experiences with, with clutches, and I'm always interested to hear someone else's perspective on that clutch where, a lot, you know, a certain percentage of them went bad. Do you think it's because the female was young or small, or do you think it's just a random thing that could happen regardless? I think, honestly, in my experience, Josh, it's a random thing that could happen regardless. I had another good, viable clutch this season, which were Paraguayan with ice. That was the clutch that I had two black babies hatch and two regular Paraguayan-looking babies come out of. That clutch was also a rather large clutch, and only four babies made it. But honestly, in my opinion, with Kiwi's clutch, the higher percentage gone bad ratio there was the reason of the female being too young. We honestly weren't ready for her to breed yet. It was just one of those, you know, one of those miracle accidents that happened, you know. And we just have to take the good with the bad on that, I guess. But it's a lesson learned. And that's why we, we filled out so many pens this season. So that when we bring out the babies outdoors, they're not kept together in the same fashion. Yeah, no, I completely agree because that's that's kind of my perspective on it too because I've had females that are pretty young and I look at them and I'm like, oh, well, it looks like it's of size of breed. It should be fine. And then, you know, a decent amount of time, the clutch to the success ratio isn't as high as, as typical. So I think it is has to do with um, – it makes sense that it's age-related. But who knows? Um, and also, okay, you know so, thing too, it has to be with a, with a percentage of crosses in them because I had the, the Super Blues that we produced. They they both uh, bred last season. I had a male and a female at 10 months old, and they have both had 100% hatch rates. Yeah, because they're not as – you're saying they're not as hybridized, basically, right? Since they're mostly blue, is that what you're trying to get out there? Exactly. That and the, I think the top one blood, since it makes them bigger animals, it gives them more of an expenditure in the stomach and so forth for them to develop everything. You know, it it just depends on what cross of blood is with what. I think. Yeah. No. So um, this this ties into um, your incubation. What, are, what? How are you incubating your eggs? Are you using the Paralyte, Hatchrite? Uh, what ratio are you using? Uh, containers, things like that. What I do is we have a, an incubator at home that we we build ourselves. And what I do is I put water tubs on the bottom of the incubator. I run my my heating uh, t- my heating tape so that it comes in an L shape to the bottom of the incubator. And then I put water tubs on the bottom of the incubator, not only to maintain a constant temperature throughout the whole system, but to also build up the humidity required to run the system by itself throughout the whole incubation period. Incubated them this past season at 86.5 degrees, and I keep them in, in uh, storage tube in the, in the clear boxes that I bought from the container store. I get the, I think it's 20-quart boxes, if I'm not mistaken, from the container store. And then what I use for substrate for their, for their incubation, I just use straight perlite. And I use the, the water to perlite weight ratio to weigh out and, and prepare the substrate. So, like for example, let's say if I'm using 240 grams of perlite, I use 240 grams of water equal ratio in the mix. And I make that that mix even enough so that when the eggs are laid out, the water moisture is not all on the top. So basically, I try to have my my egg boxes set up within 10 to 20 days prior to me expecting to have the eggs. And the incubator is set up, if not all year round, 
is set up five months prior to them having eggs inside. I got you. That makes sense. Um, are you doing the plastic covering over the eggs? I know some people do that. I've, I've seen that. Well, they'll do the tub, they do the plastic over it, and then they close the cover. I've seen that as well, but I'm not too much of a fan of that because I can't wipe down condensation buildup on that plastic. So what I do yeah. is with the I use all clear plastic boxes, and when I see condensation buildup on the top of the plastic box, I just take out the, the plastic and I wipe it down and I put it right back on the eggs. But that's, you know, I open the incubator maybe once a week because my incubator has a, a clear glass front, so I'm able to observe the clutches from the front of the incubator. But I, I steer away from using that clear plastic for that reason. I can't wipe down the, the condensation, and that, that's one thing. I'm super OCD. So if I know that condensation is being built up and I can't wipe it down, I start getting, like, super nervous in my head that the drops are falling on the eggs, you know, that the substrate around the egg area is getting too wet and it's building up some kind of moss with the moisture so to steer away from me having any variables going on in my head i just use the all clear plastic boxes and i wipe down the tops and as far as ventilation for the plastic boxes i feel like the lid that they have in between is more of a good air exchange but i also open a hole in the back of each one of them not only for for pro placement but also for for air exchange as well Gotcha. I, I always, well, I don't always ask, but I ask a lot because I've never done it that way. And I'm just, when I see it being done, I'm like, oh, I wonder how well that works for people. But I, I've never done it that way for the same exact reason. I think it would just build up a ton of moisture and um, then you can't really wipe it out or anything like that unless you take out the whole plastic. But I must work for some people because they wouldn't do it otherwise. So, um, Okay. So what other Tegu projects are you really excited about? Because honestly, you have a lot of really strong Tegus, and we know about the Purple Rain, and we know about those titaniums you're raising up. What other projects are you really excited about? Uh, another project that I'm blown away by this year that I'm trying to really get going is what I was mentioning to you in the past of the Paraguayan with Ice Clutch that yielded out two babies that were uh, almost all black and two babies that looked basically like Paraguayans. Now that they're growing out and I'm able to witness the color change, those two babies that were black are basically turning into like teal reds. They're super unique. So I'm trying to get that project going a little bit further. So I'm giving that project another go this year. I'm really looking forward to that to see if we develop something extremely unique. On top of that, I also have, like I was mentioning to you, close to eight to ten new projects of um, new albinos coming to the market. We have more super blues we're hoping to produce. We have um, more purple-purple with tritaniums that we're trying to make more purple range this upcoming season. But the projects that we're really, really excited about are we're going to go ahead and give our female Beatrix, which is a pure blue albino that was produced by Opal Dragons by Regal. We're going to go ahead and give her a try since she's very unique looking as well for being a pure blue with our honorary male bones from Laura Roberts to see if we produce the, the double heads. Then we also have oh. uh, anneries. Yeah, man. We also have anneries coming, head for anneries. We have a head annery male that we're breeding with a super blue head albino female. We have more of uh, pure blues that we're breeding together from high white lines that we're trying to prove out new albinos from those lines. And another really exciting project that we have 
is one of those that I was mentioning to you earlier from Watermelon. He yielded out some Pink Panther with Super Blue Babies this season. And those from the Pink Panther side, they're 50% head albino. From the, from the Super Blue side, they're puff head albino as well. But one neat thing is that the Pink Panthers from Ryan Malango's line, the mom to the Pink Panthers, which is uh, Watermelon's mom, she's a possible head for Annalie. So I'm going to try to do a sibling-to-sibling pairing, breeding one of the Pink Panther cross to a Super Blue back to another sibling, which is another Pink Panther cross to Super Blue female, to see if we prove out breeding some world's first unique stuff with that, to see if they really have in the bloodlines established already. So we'll be trying to basically, you know, jump a couple of years in the things that we're producing by trying to see if this pair proves out with some of the babies we produced this season. That would be great. That will be really exciting. Um, yeah, because there's not too many even um, double heads out there that I know of. I think there's, like, only, like, like two clutches out there or something like that. Um, exactly. So that would be really exciting. Uh, only Eric Sakowski and Laura Roberts have them at this time. Yep. No, that's um, that's really exciting for sure. So if um, someone wanted to get in contact with you, do you want to tell us about, you know, your company, contact information, your website, and social media, things like that? Yeah, definitely. Um, you can reach out to me on social media on Instagram at Tropical Reptiles FL. I'm also on Facebook under Carlos Michelson or Tropical Reptiles FL. We also run the group on Tegus, my partner Edward Leatherman and I. We And we have as an admin as well Eric Sikowski on the group. We run the group Exotic Tegus on Facebook. Um, another means that you could get in contact with me is my email address is tropicalreptilesfl at gmail.com. Or you could go ahead and send me a message through any of the social media means. At this moment, we're trying to update our website and bring it up to the new things that we're having going on and breeding. So the website is not a good method to reach us at, but we'll make sure to have the website going by the next breeding season. That's awesome, brother. And you guys do a great job of staying active on social media and keeping everyone in the loop. So that's why I like you guys consistently post and you guys post different things. And you guys just post. It's not Thanks, even like man. necessarily like, oh, this is for sale. It's, you know, really celebrating the animals, like saying, you know, we have this really cool animal and just being excited to have it and keeping people in the loop and informed. So I like, you know, that you guys are consistent. And I, and I like the type of information you guys post. For me, that's really exciting. It's, it's a, you know, really great to see. Um so, so Thank Jay, you very do you much, have Josh. any closing questions? Yeah, no worries, of course. Uh, do you have any closing questions for um, for Carlos, J.D.? Well, uh, Carlos, I have to say that, you know, you uh, got a lot of great information out there about the news and stuff, and uh, you are a beautiful animal that you have, and I want to thank you for coming on the show, brother. Oh, thank you very much for having me on the show, J.D. and Josh. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on the air with you guys, and I'm an open book of information. Like I mentioned to you guys, I don't tend to say that I know it all or nor do I know it all. I'm more than welcome to learn new things every day. But the little bit of information that I do have, you know, if you guys ever have a question or feel free to send me a message, you know, go ahead and do so. I'll, I'll reply to it. I'll send you as much information as I can. Also, you know, the, the takers, they do take a lot of time away from us. We're constantly building. I also work a lot of the time with, with my partner taking care of him but aside from that you know all of the time that i have free i'm more than glad to dedicate to helping out the community 
That's awesome. Thanks so much, brother. No worries, man. It's my pleasure. All righty. You have a good night. Likewise, guys. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, it was a great show, Josh. Uh, Carlos did have a lot of information there. No, he definitely did. And, you know, Carlos is a great guy, and he is, you know, very helpful. Um, I mean, I've spoke to him, you know, in the past, and I got to know him over this past year. Um, got some amazing animals from him. And, you know, he's just he's top-notch. He's, just, you know, someone that really loves reptiles, and he does a great job with them. And he's, you know, he's always really excited. You know, he's always really excited about all his projects. And, you know, his excitement, you know, it's, it's, it's catchy. It's contagious. You just get as excited as he is about them. So, so I like that. It's a really good quality to have, and he shared a ton of really good information. So I really appreciate him coming on. And that was a tagutastic uh, episode there. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> but I also also wanted to say too that uh, Lizard Hour is brought to you by uh, Nerd Kevin McCurley. He does some great stuff. Check him out. Everybody knows Kevin though, so just go check out Nerd. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, Kevin's um, excited about sponsoring it, so he's talking to me about it um, a few days ago, so so that's great. Now, we'll play our ad here, and we'll see uh, everybody next week. We have Michael Cole on. Michael Cole, you know, well, for one thing, is the old Python Hunter show, and he does some amazing stuff with ball python. Um, you know, I've seen some really cool stuff he works with. Yeah, his monitors, he has some really good luck with monitors recently, too. No, he didn't get into the, the albino gators and stuff like that, like uh, Sean Heflick and Greg has, and Greg has, has he? I'm not quite sure. I mean, we can ask him next week, but I know he does have some pretty uh, strong monitor projects, breeding, you know, his Exantics to, like, Black Dragons. And, and if, through his company that he has, and he'll, I'm sure he'll tell us more about it, they, they deal with a lot of really interesting lizard species. So I'm sure he's going to have a lot of really cool stories. And, and Michael Cole, he's, you know, he's a great guy. So Oh, yeah. We, we had him on HDR before and uh, actually got in conversation with him that he was, his family was from up here. In Pennsylvania, and he used to spend a lot of time up here herping and stuff. So it'll be kind of cool talking to him again. So we'll 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 see everybody next week. And uh, thank you for listening to Lizard Hour. Thanks so much, JD. The following are the Lizard Hour sponsors. Check out ReptileUV.com for your lighting needs and education. Home of the original designer and extended warranty on select Mega Ray UV bulbs. Remember, reptile lighting is a process, not a bulb. Fairy Tale Dragons specialize in high-quality morphs of dragons, animals, geckos, and much more. Check them out on Facebook. Innovative Ectotherms, specializing in chuckawallas, morphs, collared lizards, and more. Look for them on Facebook. Herptofauna by Josh Ortiz, specializing in Asian water monitors, Lacertas, Tegus, and many more. Lizard Hour is presented by Herpentime Radio.